Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Matt. I'm one of the student ministers here. Uh, and tonight you have the dubious privilege of letting me show you Psalm 92. Uh, so Bible's out, phone's away, the footy score can wait. Um, let's see how we go. It is our third and it's our final Sunday in the Psalms. And just to bring up to speed those of you who haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been getting a bit emotional. Uh, some of us may have been crying, there may have been tears shed. Uh, we've been looking at the Psalms, we've been trying to work out what the place emotions have uh, in the Christian faith. Because they have a place, but what place do they have? Uh, what are we supposed to feel? When are we supposed to feel it? Why? How do we express those feelings? All those sorts of things have been swirling around in our minds as we've looked at the Psalms. Uh, and so far, two weeks ago, we saw sadness, uh, then we saw fear, and then tonight we're going to see joy. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but when I think about joy, I think of those freak happy people that are always smiling at you. And no matter what happens, you turn up and they just grin at you like it's the best thing in the world. It's like, I can't stand those people. When they cry, it's only ever tears of happiness. And I just look at them. <laughs> Call me a grump. But life is hard. Why are they always so happy? How can they be happy? Is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with them? And this sort of tension that we see every now and then when those people come across us in life is the tension we're going to see in the psalm tonight. Uh, because the psalm is all happiness. It's all joy. There's not a negative thing in there. As far as the psalmist is concerned, the world is rosy. Uh, and so there's that tension there for us. But rather than make us despair and make us feel inadequate, it actually gives us hope. It helps us move forward and think about just what it is to be joyful as a Christian. So with that in mind, we're going to turn there. Uh, I hope you've got Psalm 92 in front of you. It is a good psalm. Uh, if you look at the top, just under it says Psalm 92, it says God's love and faithfulness. Are you looking at it? Can you see it? It's right there. Good. Ignore it. We're not going to look at it for the rest of the night because it's not part of the Bible. It's a random title the translators have put in. Uh, interestingly, though, the little line underneath it is, uh, it actually has its own verse number in the original Hebrew. It says this, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. We're told the purpose of the psalm here. It is a time to stop work. See, the Sabbath for the Israelites was a traditional day of rest. It would happen every week, and it was time to turn down the radio, turn off the TV, get rid of the distractions, and they'd spend their day thinking on and worshipping God. It was a day of refreshment. It was a day of creation. And can I say, we in the West have stuffed this up big time, right? Our idea of recreation and rest, Sunday morning, or at least in this case, Sunday night football, yeah, um, But that's not what rest is. Biblically, the Sabbath, biblically rest, it was a day of worship for the Israelites. And so Psalm 92 was a group of psalms that they would sing on the Sabbath to praise God. Uh, and they still do. I found this out this week, actually. The, in the Jewish synagogues around Sydney on Friday nights, they chant this in Hebrew. So we also have the privilege as Christians to see just what God has to say from it. And so it starts in verse 1. It is good to praise Yahweh. To sing praise to your name, Most High, to declare your faithful love in the morning, your faithfulness at night with a ten-stringed harp and the music of a lyre. We have here a picture of a day set aside for the praise of God. His faithfulness is proclaimed in the morning all the way through to late in the evening. His faithfulness is proclaimed. He declares it. It's not a personal internal prayer. It wells up within him. He can't contain it and it comes out in music and song. And this fountain of praise, it has a source. Verse 4. For you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Lord. 
how profound your thoughts. Look there and see what he marvels at. Look at what makes him rejoice. It's what God has done for him. It's the work of his hands. It's the very thoughts of God. These are the things that move him to praise. So this man is joyful when he looks upon the works of God. Now, typically, I think we get this wrong as Christians in the West. Uh, I think we have the right expectation as Christians to expect to be joyful. Uh, But where we go wrong is we fail to understand that our joy is actually derived from the works of God. Typically, we think joy comes from our circumstances, yeah? So we look to our jobs, we look to our circumstances, our relationships, how comfortable we are, how secure we are. And if you take time to stop and step back and think, you'll actually begin to see just how insidious and deceptive our attachment to the world is, right? So take a day this week and watch how your mood changes depending on what happens to you. Right? You get a good mark at uni, you please your boss, you're feeling pretty good. As soon as you start failing, as soon as that report comes back and the boss isn't happy, you plummet. Now, to an extent, that's a natural response, I get that. But do you see how unstable our emotions can be uh, when they're placed on things that don't last? So part of what it means for us as Christians to mature is to learn to base our sense of well-being and indeed to derive our joy from the things that God does. Why? Well, it's because those things last. They don't change. They're constant. They're steady. And so we see this beautiful picture in verse 4 and 5. The psalmist shouting for joy, and it's in response to the things that God has done. This is praise as it should be. It's a response to the works of God. But in order to praise God for them, we sort of need to know what they are. Because at the moment, the psalm's pretty general. It's not giving us too many clues. Now, there are probably infinite amount of things that we can praise God for. The psalmist tonight gives us two. And they're on the headings in your outline. And they are as follow. Number one, he rejoices in the uprooting of God's enemies. That's in verses 5 to 9. And then number two, he rejoices at the planting of God's people. Verses 10 through 15. Now, the psalm's going to hold both of these two things together. So the uprooting and the planting, they go together. They're sort of like two sides of the same coin. Uh, Because when God's enemies are defeated, God's people have rest. And in order for God's people to have rest and to relax, to be planted, God's enemies need to be destroyed. And so basically we're looking at the same thing from two different angles tonight. Uh, So let's have a look at angle number one, the uprooting of God's enemies. We read in verse 6, A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. So, lesson 101 on grass. Grass is not like a plant and it's not like a tree. So you plant or a tree, you put down in one spot and it grows up in that one spot. Grass is a covering, right? It's everywhere. So when you read these verses, you've got to get the picture into your mind. Here are the enemies of God, and they are sprouting like grass. It covers, it's everywhere, and everywhere the psalmist looks, where he expects to see justice, where he expects to see retribution or punishment of evil, heinous, horrendous deeds, all he sees is flourishing and prospering. The patch of ground over there that should be dry and dirty and completely devoid of life is alive and lush and green injustice it's unfair it is not right but rather than despair he rejoices he praises why 
It's because he knows something that the wicked don't. Though they sprout like grass and prosper in this life, they will be eternally destroyed. And here's the contrast in verse 8. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. The green grass covering the earth, uprooted, torn up, blown away by the wrath of God. It looked so good. They were living the high life. They thought they were beyond judgment. And the fool, the senseless one, they didn't see it coming. So the psalmist rejoices. God remains throughout eternity, but his enemies, they have no place there. The psalmist rejoices. It's a bit of a weird place to get joy, isn't it? And yet it's right there in the text. Do you feel uncomfortable? Because you should. See, the judgment of God is a very scary thing. Some of the most vivid and horrific descriptions of fear in the Bible come when people are facing the judgment of God. See, people in Luke call for mountains to be thrown down on them because they are trying to avoid the piercing gaze of the judging God. They call for them to come down. So how could we rejoice when somebody is that scared, that devoid of hope, when God turns up to judge, when they are eternally destroyed? Is that right? It is. And I think the main reason we struggle with this is because we don't appreciate sin for what it is. See, we know that judgment is terrifying. Uh, We wouldn't be Christians otherwise. But we often forget that that judgment is deserved. And that's actually what makes God's wrath so scary. It's just. Sin is so heinous and so offensive that it merits the greatest of punishments. It's deserved. And it's this justice that the psalmist praises. See, it's not a malicious delight in some petty enemy that he has. He's not just like being a masochist and just liking the suffering of things. The psalm is actually addressed to God. It's not addressed to those people who have been destroyed. He's saying to God, I'm so thankful, I'm rejoicing in your justice. This is right. His joy is in the fact that the righteous God is exalted, but the wicked sinners are brought low. And so there's a rightness to this picture. Just like when we see the wife basher get caught out and thrown in jail, removed from his children so he won't hurt them, we rejoice, don't we? It's right. It's good. It's the same deal here. God's punishment, as horrific and as horrendous as it is, is good and right and just. It's a heavy truth, but it's a truth. And it's one that we are moved to rejoice in. Now, you might ask at this point, how is that loving? Yeah, I mean, didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? We did. And that's precisely why he came to earth and died. So... So his enemies could now become his people. See, the reality of salvation and the command to love doesn't remove the reality of final judgment or that it's deserved. See, those who spurn the offer of salvation from Jesus remain condemned. Doubly so, in fact, right? Because they've not only sinned and deserved God's judgment, but now they've rejected the one thing that God has done off his own bat to save them. But what it does for us as Christians is it gives us humility. Yeah, because there's a time when every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ were guilty of that punishment. We were not his friend, we were his enemy. We were squarely in verses 5 to 9. But we aren't anymore, we are saved. And we recognize that God's judgment is true and right 
And that's why we praise Jesus, because his judgment fell on him for us. But as we do it, we remember that we too, if it were not for the grace of God, would be receiving the same punishment. And so we rejoice not just in God's punishment, but also in his salvation. Which brings us to our second point, the planting of God's people. Now, I mentioned before that the defeat of God's enemies and the rest of God's people are two sides of the same coin. That's because God's enemies are also the enemies of God's people. It kind of makes sense, right? If you are for God and there are those who are against God, then those people are also going to be against you. And when you have enemies, you have conflict. We've all been like that, even if it's the schoolyard bully. When you've got somebody who's out to get you, you have conflict. And when you have conflict, you don't have rest. And so throughout the Old Testament, one of God's promises to his people was to give them rest from their enemies. It was part of his expression of love and blessing to them. And what we see in verse 10 as we keep moving through the psalm is that God is doing just that. Have a read of it. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with oil. My eyes look down on my enemies. My ears hear evildoers when they attack me. He has been exalted. His enemies, they're below him. He can hear them. There's no surprises. Uh, Now, The lifting up of the horn and the anointing of oil, both of those are royal phrases. They're supposed to connote for us an idea of kingship. Now, we don't know whether a king wrote this psalm. Uh, It doesn't tell us, although it's probably likely. Regardless, what we have here is a representative of Israel, a representative of God's people, and he has been granted victory over his enemies. He's been given rest by God. And it's this picture of harmony and prosperity that we see flow out of that victory in verse 12. See, the righteous, they thrive like palm trees and they grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. See, God has been faithful to his promises. Israel didn't survive, they thrived, they grew. And you're supposed to feel the contrast here. See, God's enemies, grass everywhere, uprooted, torn away. But God's people planted Lesson 101 on trees. Once you plant a tree, you can't move it. Sometimes you want to, you can't. And usually when you plant a tree, you don't intend to move it. It's there and it's there for good. So I want you to observe where God plants Israel. He plants him in his house, in his very courts. This is a picture of untold blessing. He is saying to Israel, you're mine, you're staying with me forever. And so the psalmist, he rejoices. He rejoices at the faithfulness of the Lord and he rejoices at the way that he has prospered Israel. It is a beautiful, wonderful picture. But for us as Christians living in the 21st century, it begs the question, doesn't it? How many of us actually see this sort of blessing in our Christian lives? Kind of goes back to the free happy people, right? Life isn't always rainbows and kittens in baskets. (laughs) It's not. It's hard. Most of the time, rather than feeling like these wonderful trees in this state forest, we feel like lumberjacks are kind of like hacking at our ankles. We've got like weird, freaky animals stealing our fruit. Like it's not a nice experience. We feel that, right? Don't we? We're accustomed to suffering. The Christian life is hard. So what do we do with these verses? Two things I want to say uh, about the perspective of the writer and then about the perspective of history in general. The first thing we've got to understand is that this guy who is writing the psalm is writing after God has established him and Israel. It is a snapshot in time. It's no less true, and it's important that we understand that it is completely positive. But the reality is that he would have suffered to get there. 
But second, and perhaps more important, not just perhaps it is, with the coming of Jesus, certain things have changed. History changes. See, in the time of the psalm, God's people, God's enemies, the righteous and the wicked, divided along national lines. It was very easy to pick who was God's people and who wasn't. It's basically, if you're living in Israel, God's people. If you're outside, God's enemies. When Jesus comes and he brings the kingdom of God and he brings salvation, citizenship ceased to be along those national boundaries. It was no longer based on ethnicity. It became about what was going on in your heart. And so all of a sudden, a lot of the outward identifiers, even like stuff like circumcision, completely disappeared. And you can tell, right? Everything's been internalized. And so what that means then for prosperity, particularly on a national level, is that it no longer has the significance that it used to have. It makes no sense. Do God's people still prosper today, Christians? Absolutely. Jesus is living proof of that. Uh, The enemies of God, they put him to death. But... God, because he is exalted and the wicked are laid low, he raised him back to life, set him on a throne over all creation to live forever. He was squarely planted and he remains so to this day. And as his followers, as believers in Jesus, our prosperity is exactly the same as Christ's. We don't win fistfights and we don't have bucket loads of money. Well, at least some of us don't. I certainly don't. Right? But what we do have is something far greater. We have the faithfulness of God to us in our lives. He holds on to us and he helps us hold on to the faith that we profess and he will one day come back to judge, at which point he will vindicate us, show us for the righteous people we are through Christ uh, when he comes to judge the wicked. And so for the Israelite, when we read verse 14, to bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, for them that meant long life in the promised land. Peace, good health, abundant harvests. It was a nice time to be alive. But our harvest as Christians is an entirely different kind. It's the fruit of the praise that declares, look in verse 15, the Lord is just. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Be assured of this, my brothers and sisters, our Lord is faithful. No matter how hard it is, no matter how much it feels like you have been uprooted, he is faithful and will hold on to you. Jesus Christ right now is at the right hand of the throne of God and he is interceding for you and for me if we are followers of him that we will persevere in the faith. There is no greater blessing than the faithfulness of God. And so when he comes back to judge his enemies, he will take us and he will plant us in his father's house and we will be with him forever. See, the Lord, he plants his people and that is why we praise him. Now, During the week, when I was preparing Lesson 101 on trees, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll give you a Lesson 102 on trees. And I did a bit of research. I know you're impressed. I can see it in your faces. um, Did you know, right, that the oldest tree is just under 5,000 years old? That's full on, hey. And the guy who found it accidentally cut it down. (laughs) What a champion. That's what you do in the 60s. You cut down really old trees. Uh, And technically speaking, like that tree, 5,000 years, he's older than Jesus at that point, right, the tree. Um, since he's cut the tree down, right, the tree foundation of the international world of the world, I don't know what they call themselves, they actually hide the location of trees now right, to stop tourists and other people coming over there and ruining the habitat and potentially killing them. Right? And what I want to kind of suggest is that's not what trees are for. Trees are supposed to stand out loud and proud. They, they're supposed to be witnesses to the history that they've seen right? because trees have been around for a long time. They endure fires, they endure floods. They endure drought. They endure the cold of winter. 
And after a while, they begin to show it. They get all kind of crusty and stuff. Like, frankly, there's some really ugly trees out there, hey? But not God's trees. See, they are healthy, they are green, even when they're old. Even after the flame, even after the flood, they remain. They remain planted, they remain tall, witnesses to the faithfulness of God. And it's true. My grandma is 96 years old. She looks like a hobbit. She is small and frail, but all she ever talks about is how good God has been to her. I'm like, Grandma, tell me about the depression. God was good. It's like, oh, Grandma. It it really ticks me off. Like, I'm trying to get all sorts of interesting information over the last century that she's been alive. I'm like, Grandma, tell me about World War II. God was good. Grandma, just tell me about the Nazis. But it's true. You go and find Keith and Patricia. I don't know, some of you guys may know them. They're in the 9 a.m. congregation. Those guys are amazing, right? Um, They're old, they're geriatric, they have trouble moving around. But as soon as they start speaking, I'm like the fat kid to their Usain Bolt. Their confidence in the faithfulness of God is staggering. And when they open their mouth, you only ever hear joy. These are the sorts of people in the church of God that are the seasoned cedars. Their hands are gnarled, their skin is rough and scratchy, their backs are bowed, but they stand tall and you will not find more joyful people. That is the work of God. And so with the psalmist in verse 1, we say, it is good to praise the Lord, to declare his faithful love in the morning, his faithfulness at night. See, God has given us every reason to be joyful because he has given us rest in Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, it is indeed good to praise you, good for the bones and good because it is right. Lord, I pray that you will be with us as you have been with some of your saints of old, that you will help us as we grow older in the world's eyes to remain tall and leafy and green. Lord, compel us to be joyful. Help us to understand just the magnitude of what it is that you do in the world, how profound your thoughts, how marvelous your works. Will you capture our hearts with your beauty? Will you steady them with your faithfulness? Will you bless us and help us as a congregation to overflow with joy? Amen.